strong organizational culture, effective leadership, purposeful strategy. These are essential for success in today's dynamic legal marketplace. They're key both to enhancing competitiveness and minimizing risk. And they're the topic of this episode of Speaking of Law Firm Leadership. I'm Joe Peach, Senior Counsel in the Law Firm Management Services Department at Alas. And with me today is Dr. Bernard Banks. Bernie is the Associate Dean for Leadership Development and a Clinical Professor of Management at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Prior to joining Kellogg in 2016, Bernie was a Brigadier General in the U.S. Army and in charge of West Point's Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership. Earlier in his 30-year Army career, Bernie led multiple military units, ranging in size from 10 to 500 people, accumulating leadership awards along the way. Bernie will be speaking at the Alas Managing Partner Program on July 25th in Chicago. He's here today to give us a head start on some of the organizational culture, leadership, and strategy topics he'll cover in detail at that program. Welcome, Bernie. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. So help us unpack how your career progressed and evolved from military leader, then to military leadership instructor, and now finally to business leadership instructor. I graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point and initially was commissioned as a field artillery officer. Consequently, I served for four years in that career field in a variety of junior manager roles, and after that period was selected to attend flight school. Following that, I served as a flight officer, if you would, an aviation leader for the next 15 years of my career where I led organizations of various size and complexity in locations around the globe, both in peacetime and in combat. In 2002, the opportunity arose to go to West Point and serve as a military leadership instructor for a period of two years. At the time, I thought it would be a one-time event. However, I discovered that I absolutely loved the opportunity to help develop the younger talent for the military and to learn more about the science associated with the art of leading. Following my two-year period on the faculty, I then served as the general manager for an organization located in South Korea. Afterwards, I was selected to pursue my doctoral studies at Columbia University in New York City and resume a role on the faculty at West Point as a permanent faculty member, where I served from 2009 to 2016, ultimately becoming one of the deans of the colleges located at West Point. In 2016, when I elected to transition from the military, the opportunity arose to join the faculty and the senior leadership team at the Kellogg School, where today I have oversight for how we integrate leader development across our global portfolio of degree programs. Now, as you've encountered organizational culture in these various roles and examined it from these various vantage points, have you gleaned any you know, universal truths, uh, lessons about organizational culture that seem to persist regardless of the context? I most certainly have developed a keen awareness of what research has uncovered as it pertains to the interplay between strategy and culture. The research is quite clear. Culture is meant to support an organization's ability to execute its strategy. It's not meant to have culture determine an organization's strategy. However, the more entrenched a culture becomes, many times it becomes an end unto itself. And that's where the tail is wagging the dog, so to speak. 
culture should never exist for the sole purpose of advancing its own aims. Organizations have to be very clear to develop the culture they require, not simply to nurture the culture they have. I can see how that nuance of the interplay between culture and strategy can cause some confusion. On an even more basic level, though, it, it also seems like there's confusion sometimes about what facets actually make up an organization's culture. Can you talk a bit about that, uh, the facets of organizational culture and how they interact with one another? So one of the world's leading authorities on this thing we call culture is a gentleman by the name of Edgar Schein, who was a longtime faculty member at MIT Sloan School of Management. And Schein's work revealed that culture consists primarily of three elements. The first element is what he called artifacts, and those are physical representations of a culture, like a logo, or the manner in which people dress or greet one another. The interesting thing about artifacts is that artifacts are reflective of culture, but they do not drive culture. However, many times leaders believe that if they change the artifacts, changing the artifacts will change people's behavior. And actually, they do not. They simply reflect the things the organization values, or if the artifacts are not aligned with the things the organization values, people highlight the lack of alignment. The next level of culture is what he called espoused values. And those are those formal strategies, justifications for why we do the things we do. Espoused values are always positive in nature. You're not going to see an espoused value that says, we believe deeply in engaging in financial malfeasance or bilking our customers, you know, or anything like that. So those statements are always positive in nature, but Shine's work revealed that there's this other thing called values in use. And those aren't written down, but they most certainly are what gets you noticed, either in a positive or negative way in any organization. When culture is healthy, there's a one-to-one -one congruence between espoused values and values in use. They're one and the same. In most organizations, there's slight divergence. In organizations where the culture is not healthy, you have tremendous divergence between those formal statements and what is actually valued on a daily basis. Many folks call 2018 the corporate apology tour, and for many of those companies that found themselves in less than fortunate circumstances, it was because the values in use had gotten so far out of alignment with their espoused values. And so the actions that were being undertaken by people in the organization were not consistent with the formal statements they were making about what the organization was committed to embody. But the deepest level of culture is what Shine called underlying assumptions. And frequently, they predate your arrival. And once again, they might not be written down. But if you violate one of those beliefs, you most certainly will feel it as much like touching a third rail in a subway station. And so I call those the thou shouts of any organization. They are the most deeply held beliefs. And so many times when organizations try to adopt another organization's best practices and they struggle to make it work where they're at, it's because that practice is violating their organization's underlying assumptions or values in use. And so understanding each of these elements is critical if you're to think intently about how will we modify our culture so that we can pursue our strategy well. You know, speaking of underlying assumptions, I imagine you've seen a variety of assumptions underpinning the various organizations you've been a part of or, or studied. Talk a bit about how you've seen effective organizational culture manifest itself in different ways. So it always starts with a deep awareness of 
what are we committed to doing and why, and what kind of behavior will be required for us in order to do that. So effective culture is always aligned with contextual needs. For example, in the military, we have to foster a disciplined approach, but we also have to foster critical thinking because we deal in a complex environment. Creating a culture that can allow those two things to coexist, this notion of disciplined execution while at the same time thinking critically about the challenges we are presented, we've developed a culture that allows us to do that well. You contrast that with the culture of a place like Kellogg, which is focused on intellectual exploration. There's a tremendous emphasis on individuality and also on the ability to explore topics that might be provocative in nature. That's a very different culture because this notion of team alignment, a culture that's primarily rooted in we are all rowing together as opposed to, yes, we're all part of the collective. However, we want to foster that individuality that exists for each one of the faculty members so that they can pursue their research. So you're always trying to create a culture that allows you to execute the organization's strategy well. And it's not to say that one culture is better than another. Cultures are always different. The only question that matters is, do you have the culture that you require in order to do the things that you desire? Now, building off the insights you've outlined thus far, let's see if we can help our listeners avoid some common mistakes. Can you think of a scenario where you frequently see leaders footfault when working with these issues? Absolutely. So first, organizational culture the important thing to understand is it cannot be created solely through targeted interventions by saying, hey, from this point forward, we're going to do the following. Or you bring in one individual and say, hey, they now are the ones driving the show and they're going to determine how all of us are going to behave from this point going on. That's very common. They put organizational culture change efforts on an individual by the basis of the role they occupy without understanding how are these things actually influenced over time? You know, I'd also like to return to something you mentioned earlier, uh, this notion that culture is meant to support the organization's ability to execute its strategy. What about when an organization wants or needs to change strategy? It seems like plenty of potential pitfalls there. You know, how should they proceed? How's culture implicated? Can you discuss that a bit? The fact that an organization wants to change its strategy does not automatically mean that they will also have to change their culture. However, there might be the need to change culture in order to execute strategy well. So if, in fact, the new strategy will require cultural modification, it's important to understand how the impetus for change is actually generated as part of those efforts. So there are three primary ways in which you can go about generating why change is necessary. So the first one is what we call the induction of guilt or anxiety. Let's say your law firm is starting to see that partners are defecting, that you're losing clients, that you're no longer able to get the best talent coming out of law school. Helping people to understand if we do not address this properly, ultimately the firm is going to be in a very bad place. One way in which you can go about creating a deep awareness of why change is necessary. The second way is what we call lack of confirmation or disconfirmation. We believe something to be true about our firm, but we can't actually prove it. We believe something 
not to be true about the firm, but we can't disprove it. Deep analytics, the one way in which you can help address that as part of your establishing the need for change actions. The third way is what we call the creation of psychological safety. You have a managing partner or series of senior partners within the firm that are deeply trusted. And as a result of the referent power they've built with members of the firm, people will consent to follow them on whatever change actions are being advocated. Well, thanks, Bernie. Those are some great thoughts. We appreciate you making the time to be with us today. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you. Well, we'll have to stop there. But Bernie will be with us again at the Managing Partner Program on July 25th in Chicago to discuss these and other related topics in more depth. And until next time, this has been Speaking of Law Firm Leadership. This podcast is provided for educational purposes to assist lawyers in avoiding ethics violations, malpractice suits, other professional liability claims, and management liability claims. This podcast does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. The recommendations contained in this podcast are not necessarily appropriate for every lawyer or law firm. In determining the best course of action, lawyers should consider the applicable legal authorities and all relevant facts and circumstances. Copyright 2019 by Attorneys Liability Assurance Society. All rights reserved.